90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how you doing? Uh, pretty good. Um, I've been catching up on my email all week, and I've only got like 400 unread messages left. So, Ooh, yeah, <laughs> inbox zero is a good tactic. You know, if it's zero at the end of every day, it, it helps a lot. <laughs> It's just like it's just like dishes though, you know, like as soon as all the dishes are done and then you like don't want to drink water because there's no dishes in the sink. <laughs> like I feel like it's that way with email too. Just take a picture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I'm better at uh, email than getting to sink zero, that's for sure. <laughs> I'm the opposite. I hate sitting down in front of the computer, so you're lucky I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, though you, you have had some recent technological triumphs. Oh, I figured out. <laughs> I've mastered Google Docs. <laughs> <laughs> Which we've run the show on for over a year. <laughs> Look, I am a slow learner, and uh, I'm super excited. I only had to Google it for like about a week and a half, but uh, I'm there. I'm, I'm there. I can move files into folders i'm super excited <laughs> well before you know it you'll be editing the show too <laughs> let's not go that far <laughs> well i know we're recording this show early and i imagine that in real time you'll be on the beach somewhere in mexico at this at this hour yeah though the show does post at 6 a.m i would like to think there would be a margarita involved uh <laughs> no so i am actually going to be spending the entire week previous to when this show came out in Ixtapa, Guerrero, Mexico, at a conference on slow earthquakes and slow slip. All right. And slow gin and... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it should be a really great conference. Uh, it is actually really difficult to get to this part of Mexico, unfortunately. It's mm -hmm. a little bit of a touristy part, but for me, there's only one flight a week uh, from my location in Pennsylvania, where I can get there in less than one day. And God knows it'd probably break down. <laughs> right. So I'm going down in theory, or will have gone down, I guess, uh, in one day, hopefully. But then going back, it's actually going to take me two days, which is why we don't get to record the show, because I'm probably somewhere in the air, hopefully going from Houston north when this comes out. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see how that works out for you. Um, I imagine that <laughs> we'll have a lot to talk about since there's no way this could possibly go off without a hitch, knowing you and travel. No, not at all. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I've got a feeling it's going to be a very interesting experience getting from the airport uh, to the convention center as well. Mm -hmm. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, how's your Spanish? Uh, not very good. Okay. <laughs> yep. Enchilada. Okay, you got that down, but <laughs> I am hoping that technology will save me and the iPhone and or <laughs> pictures and addresses in large text on my screen will work. Uh, uh yeah, so when we went to Brazil for a conference, we weren't necessarily in a very touristy area and it was very interesting because it turns out Portuguese is not really like Spanish at all. So uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, I imagine you'll have a lot of tales to tell, so that will uh, be exciting. Yeah, but this week we decided that we would do another Back to Basics after we had that great interview last week. Uh, yeah, exactly. That was super exciting interview. We had so much fun doing it. Um, and I guess I would like to lead in from the moon to caves, but it doesn't really lead in. So we'll just say we're talking about caves this week. <laughs> Yeah, our transition's a little rough there. Uh, yep, yep. <laughs> but we're going to talk about caves, which is something that I uh, really enjoy. I have gone, you know, caving on multiple occasions, actually more so before I moved up here, where there are more caves, just because of time constraints. Uh, Ironically. But, right. But I've really enjoyed uh, caving and taking measurements in caves in the past, and the way they form is really unique, and they have a lot of history with them. Uh, they do. Um, in terms of talking about caves in class, recently we talked a lot in my native science class about indigenous creation stories, and so many of them begin in caves um, for the obvious reasons, like caves are these weird geologic features, right? It's this hole in the ground, 
And, um, I mean, many, many Native tribes, the Chippewa, Choctaw, Lakota, just to name a few, um, all have their creation stories starting with people emerging from caves onto the, you know, onto the land. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Yeah, and caves always have, even in other cultures, uh, there's something mysterious or something hiding in them or that they always play a role, even if it's just to hide dragons. <laughs> Which we will actually talk about later. Yes. <laughs> um, so I guess that we could have introed into this, you know, you're going to be on the ocean uh, where you make limestone. And that's what most caves, the rock type that most caves are in is limestone. Um, you get other types of rocks, dolomite, obviously close related, and then say gypsum, halite, or marble. And so those are sort of the main uh, rock types that we're looking at when we're talking about cave formation. Right. And if you have taken an intergeology class or like to study mineralogy, you'll know that all of these, or not all, but most, especially limestone, uh, has something very interesting happen when you take your little acid bottle out and drop a drop of acid onto it. It goes crazy fizzing and bubbling. And that's the key, right? Uh, exactly. Um, that that's it's a really simple formula to make a cave, and you need your rock, and you need carbon dioxide and hydrogen, and that's it. And that's how you can make a really simple acid called carbonic acid. And so the interaction of those rocks with carbonic acid is how you start to dissolve things. And I mean, rain is not pH neutral. Rain is slightly acidic. Um, did you know the pH of rain? Did you remember that from our meteorology days? You know, I didn't remember it, but luckily we have it in front of us now in this in this <laughs> show note document. So it's an average of about 5.4 uh, with 7 being neutral. So, And that's, that's a log scale. So it's uh, actually relatively acidic. So where does this rain become acidic? Well, it picks up CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, and it's just CO2 and water combines to make, to make H2CO3, which is carbonic acid. So you can get it from rainwater, but there's also a lot of uh, CO2 in soil, right? And so water traveling through soil picks up CO2, picks up hydrogen, and also makes carbonic acid. So you've got this sort of double whammy of groundwater and meteoric water both being acidic. Right. And, you know, this is actually, if you look on the back of your soda can and there's carbonic acid, this is the same reaction that happens with your aragonite teeth yes. and carbonic acid. So it's a bad deal. You shouldn't drink that. As I say, sipping my Dr. Pepper. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, a, it's exactly, it's the same sort of, it's the same sort of reaction. And, um, you know, it can be really, if you put hydrochloric acid on limestone it's very impressive <laughs> right but caves take a lot longer to form um and there was actually and i was surprised by this a little bit of not fighting but sort of disparity as to how we think caves form is it just from rainwater percolating down or is it actually formed at the groundwater table and i guess i didn't realize that that's still sort of a a new concept that we believe it's formed right at the groundwater table yeah. And I mean, that's, you know, some people think, well, you get a hole in the ground and it is enlarged uh, by this water percolation. And that's generally not what happens. We probably have these very large underground cave systems that have no entrances because they do form, well, relatively deep at the groundwater table. And then sometimes we punch entrances ourselves when we think they're there or nature might eventually make one for us. Right, exactly. Because as we know, you know, the groundwater table fluctuates quite a bit and it takes some of these caves a really long time to form. So, you know, the relative level of groundwater has changed. Um, some caves are, a lot of them are underground, like Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, right? And then some of them are less underground, all those ones that we explore. I know that you've been in, in Arkansas and stuff. Yeah, there's some where you're, you know, 10 feet or 20 feet under the topsoil. <laughs> yes. It's not really caving. And then you can go to Carlsbad and you're hundreds of feet down. <laughs> hey, don't disparage those little guys. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's still holes in the ground. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> before we move on, and you speaking of Carlsbad, um, it forms a little differently. Uh, it's one of those ones that this is pretty neat. Um, 
we talked about groundwater, talked about water from above, but Carlsbad is actually formed from below. Yeah, and, and if you haven't been to Carlsbad, you should definitely go. It's a fantastic cave system, and like I said, it's pretty deep. And that is actually due to bugs, which is, again, something we don't know much about. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll have to get some of our paleontologists back on here. Um, so the rock that Carlsbad, the cave is in, overlies reservoir rock, and we're talking about hydrocarbon reservoirs. And in this oil-laden rock, you've got a lot of microbes. And these microbes convert sulfur that's naturally in oil to hydrogen sulfide. And as it does that, you'll remember hydrogen is one of our ingredients for making a cave. The hydrogen percolates up. As it does so, it rises up, interacts with groundwater. There you get your carbonic acid at a deeper level in the groundwater than you normally would since your hydrogen is coming from above. And so you're producing this really deep cave due to this carbonic acid from microbes breathing out hydrogen sulfide reacting with deep groundwater. Yeah, and hydrogen sulfide is not friendly stuff at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, no, not at all. So you've seen pictures of or heard, I'm sure, the phrase canary in a coal mine, right? Right. And so that is something that miners used to carry around canaries to see if the air was breathable. Um, and that's because, you know, your canary could die before you do and you think oh no so there's unbreathable air um in these deep mine shafts or you know if they're looking in caves or something like that so h2s could fill up rooms in caves and potentially kill people so it's actually a really big deal to understand how your cave got formed before you go trolloping through it <laughs> yeah and hydrogen sulfide turns out to be important in a lot of geological systems i know we worked with uh, hydrogen sulfide controlling uh, gas hydrate stability on Mars. Uh, so it affects a lot of things and shows up in more places than you would initially guess. Uh, yeah, because, I mean, you think H2S, that's bad stuff. I mean, you can, when you're actually producing oil, you can get H2S leaks, and that's that's some scary environmental issues that happen when you start producing H2S. So, yeah, it's bad stuff. Um, but that's interesting about Carlsbad, and that's where you're getting your sourcing your hydrogen. So... You're right. Lots of geologic processes are affected by that. Yeah. But not only can these processes form just plain old caves, but you can get some other interesting things like sinkholes, too. Uh, right. And so you get sinkholes in much the same way, right? And the overall word for dissolution of rock is karsting. Okay? So if you've heard that word before... Um, and like you heard the word karstopography, that's the word that we use to describe this topography left behind when you dissolve rocks. So not just caves, but also when you have collapse of rocks, you know, at the surface due to dissolving rocks underneath. Um, and not just limestone, gypsum, other halites, so salts that would dissolve once you introduce water. Um, and the coolest thing I thought was, I learned this today too, that uh, sinkholes are also called dolines or shake holes, or swallets. I had not heard any of those before, actually. Just I will say, sinkholes. I did get that from Wikipedia, so hopefully it's correct. <laughs> but swallets, I believe, I will use from now on. Yes. And these uh, are really but, easy to see in the rock record if you know what you're looking for. So as a geophysicist, I have to ask the geologist, well, what would you be looking for? <laughs> So um, usually when we talk about deposition of like a limestone or any of these evaporite layers like gypsum or halite, you think of a low energy environment. If it weren't low energy, these little critters wouldn't be living there in order to precipitate out uh, some of the stuff that makes up limestone or in the case of these gypsum and halite layers, they're usually really linear. So if you come to a part in this layer that is all jumbled up <laughs> and it basically looks like a big fault, but there's no sign of a fault anywhere. There's no offset of the beds. It just is a big jumble of those same rocks. It's pretty safe to say that you've got a collapse feature or a karst feature. It was an empty hole and then it caved in on itself, sinkhole, and 
there you go. It's really the only one of the only ways to explain how you would get that without any offset like you would see in a fault. Hmm. Well, and yeah. you know, this is this karst topography. I know in the caving world, they always talk about the tag area, which is Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia. Uh, so mm-hmm. tons of caves in that area. We have quite a few caves up here in Pennsylvania, uh, but they're pretty much everywhere. And sinkholes compose a pretty large natural hazard uh, that can strike when least expected, right? Oh, yeah. And I mean, I think uh, especially here in North America, Florida is one of those places that uh, we see sort of the unexpected sinkholes quite a bit, right? Yeah. And, you know, I would say the most famous sinkhole (laughs) recently uh, has to have been in Kentucky, which was at the Corvette Museum. Uh, Back in 2014, this huge sinkhole opened up and eight of these very classic priceless Corvettes fell down into the sinkhole. And there's security camera footage of this happening. Uh, So it's interesting. We'll link that in the show notes to go watch. That was terrible. Absolutely terrible being somewhat car person. That was super sad to watch. Um, But Yeah, and you generally don't think about the floor of your facility just going out from under it yeah exactly i mean just a few years ago in florida too somebody was killed they were sleeping and their house just half of the house disappeared into this like 100 foot deep sinkhole so you know these things it's happening below you i mean especially florida because most of the bedrock there is all limestone and you know you get a lot of this karst topography forming so it's a really scary thing there's all kinds of things that you could do to sort of find these, right? You could use GPR and stuff like that, geophysical things. But, you know, what are you supposed to do? Go ahead and go over the whole state and try to do this to figure out where these things are. So it's kind of a, yeah, I mean, an issue. <laughs> yeah, and they're generally, I'm not going to say they're small features because, like you said, they can be house-sized plus. But in terms of geology and doing geophysics surveys, that's a small feature. And right. it would be really hard to cover any appreciable area with something like GPR, seismics. Yes. Uh, it's, you can do microgravity and detect caves, but you have to be very careful because it's a pretty small gravity anomaly. Uh, and gravity is non-unique. So. And gravity is non-unique. <laughs> so it, if we had that dense of coverage, it would be great. But yeah, it's not going to happen. Right. So you shouldn't live in the southeast, apparently. Because, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, you don't want one of those swallets to get you. But <laughs> if your sinkhole or if your uh, hole in your rock doesn't collapse, it's a cave, right? Um, and so cave formation, this might be the coolest thing I learned today, too, is uh, speleogenesis is the name of cave formation, which right. is pretty cool. <laughs> and um, caves are just so full of neat geologic features that you don't see on the surface. It's unbelievable. Oh, yeah. And these are likewise called speleothems. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of these speleo words are a lot of fun. But <laughs> th- everybody learns the classic stalactite are the things coming down from the ceiling, and stalagmite are the things coming up from the floor. These are generally deposited as water is dripping and leaves a little bit of mineral behind as it does so. So imagine water dripping, percolating through the ceiling, each time leaving a little bit of mineral behind, and eventually you get this cone growing from the ceiling or a hollow straw, a soda straw. Uh, And then that water hits the ground, deposits a little bit of mineral, and you get stalagmites that start building upward. And sometimes you even get them meeting and get these really nice, huge columns. Uh, Right, Uh, so grow together, you could get pillars, columns, all kinds of words to talk about how they interact. Uh, like John said, soda straws is one thing that they call uh, some of these hollow ones that come down. And um, as it leaves behind that little piece of calcite in there, um, it's really cool because you can actually look at these speleothems and tell how long it took for them to be deposited, much like you could look at a tree ring to understand the growing cycles of the tree and count how old it is the same thing can be done with these speleothems but we will say it is illegal to do so (laughs) yes you should not if you do go into a cave break or do anything to the formations 
without explicit written permission. It's not good practice. You want everybody to be able to enjoy what's there. Right. And I mean, there is a bunch of, um, there's a bunch of sort of black market stalactites and stalagmites, which I thought was really interesting. Um, our local geology club came across one of them and, you know, we had to make sure like it wasn't illegally begotten. Um, so yeah, so it's really a big deal because these things take sometimes, you know, millions of years to grow and you don't want to just break it off and ruin it for everyone else. Yeah, exactly. And there's all kinds of other weird things that you'll see in caves too that are uh, processes of flowing water, splashing water, or water leaving behind mineralization in just about any way it can. And they have all kinds of creative names, right? Oh, yeah. Um, obviously, everyone's favorite will be cave bacon. <laughs> Anything with bacon is good. Exactly. Uh, so cave bacon are like these sheets. If you can imagine, it basically looks like a curtain, um, but it has different coloration stripes, just like a piece of bacon would. And if you sign a flashlight behind it, it looks like bacon hanging from the ceiling. So it's pretty awesome. Yep. <laughs> um, popcorn. So it, again, is exactly like you would think. It's just these little blobs of calcite or travertine um, that look like spilled popcorn everywhere. You've got flow stone. Again, very obvious. It's just this sort of sheet. It looks like frozen. Well, I mean, it looks like ice. It looks like a frozen wall of rock. Um, so it's really weird. And I feel like you have to go to a bunch of different caves to see these because as we'll talk about here in a minute, you know, there are some caves that sort of have a lot of one feature based on the geology that they formed in. Yeah. And it's, I will say you do have to go to, like you said, a lot of different caves and do a lot of exploring in these caves to see some of these things and maybe photographically capture them if that's what you're into. Uh, it's a lot of squeezing through tiny spaces. Yeah, I've never actually been anywhere that I've had to, I mean, I've had to get on my knees to go through a cave, but I've never had to go through and squeeze. I don't know if I could do it. <laughs> Yeah, we'll talk about that towards the end, maybe. Talk about Super some scary. caving experiences. Uh, <laughs> but caves are also home to some unique wildlife as well. Uh, again, a word I didn't know. Um, so you're familiar with troglodytes, right? Not a good mm -hmm. thing to be called. But troglobites, did you know what this was? I actually did not. <laughs> no. Um, so it's just sort of that over-encompassing term for these small cave creatures um, that have been very selectively evolved to live in caves. These creatures couldn't survive on the land surface. Um, so most of them are, you know, kind of clear looking or colorless. Sometimes you'll see like these little scorpions and little snails and stuff and fish that don't have eyes. And instead they've adapted advanced hearing or touch sensory um, organs or just enhanced hearing and touch uh, based on because they can't see in these dark caves. Um, so that was really cool. These troglobites were first found in the 1600s uh, when this local cave flooded and it brought up a whole bunch of these little guys. And people thought that they were the offspring of subterranean dragons. There be dragons. That has to be the answer. <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> yeah, and actually in Arkansas, near where I grew up, uh, there's a cave that people used to go kayaking through and floating through, oh. uh, but it's been fenced off and closed for a long time now. It's actually alarmed with multiple alarms because it has some very rare species of cavefish uh, oh, living wow. in it, and they, <laughs> I think the last time they anybody was in the cave was something like 15 or 20 years ago now for the wildlife survey, and they don't expect to go back in for a while because it's such a delicate ecosystem. Wow, that's really neat. Um, I, I think that when you visit some of these like more well-visited caves, you know, they talk all about not touching stuff and everything. And I think people don't realize how delicate the ecosystems are where just the oil on your hand, if you touched a stalactite, it can inhibit that growth of that stalactite forever. So essentially you kill it with your hand oils. Um, so it's super sensitive. I mean, the same thing if there's any standing body of water within a cave, if you put your hand into it, 
you're really messing it up for anything that lives in there. Well, yeah, and the the catch is with a lot of the more well-visited caves, you're one of 6,000 people to do that this month. (laughs) Right, yeah, exactly. Uh, Not to mention you're sitting there breathing. That's bad enough as it is, actually. So Uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, So they're really nice places to visit, but you do need to take a lot of precautions, uh, and there are guidelines out there for that if you do visit wild caves. You should definitely check laws because... There are a lot of caves that it is illegal to enter, and there are significant fines. Oh, yes, exactly. Um, There's been sort of in the last, um, I don't know for sure, I just know the last 10 years as I've been visiting a lot more national parks, um, especially ones that have caves, that this uh, bat disease, um, it's like white nose. White nose bat fungus. Yeah, and so that's a big deal because if you've been somewhere where that exists and you try to go into another cave like they won't let you in even if you know you haven't been there i think it was the questionnaire i went to was six months in the past six months have you been you know to this whole list of places and um so if you had and you had taken because i remember i went into an underground mine in colorado and then i went to a cave in nevada and so they swabbed down um like my shoes and my camera and all this stuff um i had to sit there and be swabbed for quite some time because they take it really seriously because bats are you know one of the biggest mammal groups which i didn't know until national (laughs) bat day um and there a lot of them are dying because of this fungus so it is a really big deal yeah and it's getting more under control but i know that uh, just going between caves here in pennsylvania when i had a chance to do that several years back uh we had to wash all of our caving gear, boots, helmets, lamps, everything in a certain degree, uh, water with so much bleach or other chemicals in it. Yep. Uh, there were different sterilization procedures for hard surfaces versus clothing versus rubber boots. And it was a very, very big deal. The local caving club members would not let you get anywhere near a cave if they thought your gear had not been properly sterilized. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it's something to really take seriously, so you shouldn't see it as an annoyance. You should be, you know, very happy that that is taking place because the living things in these caves, you know, just like we said, it's really delicate, and they play an important part, not just of the cave ecosystem, but of the ecosystem around, you know, outside of the cave as well. Yeah, and, well, I guess we could mention a couple of caves that, uh, some of the big ones that people may have heard of. I know we've already talked about Carlsbad, uh, but I know you've got another favorite. Uh, yeah, I, I listed a couple of different favorites. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I tried to, you know, I didn't, I didn't, a lot of people have been to Carlsbad. A lot of people have been to Mammoth Cave or um, things like that. So um, one of the caves that I tell stories about because it features prominently in creation myths is Wind Cave in South Dakota. And this is a, lesser visited park but it was certainly a really cool um a really cool cave tour it's it's actually the sixth longest cave in the world it's 140 miles and they're still mapping it like they're not even close to being done they think and it actually has a the one of the densest uh sort of cave networks so like per cubic x number of kilometers it has the most passageways there are several different um levels to the cave and it's really weird to be in (laughs) yeah and i've never got to go to this Uh, i would really like to at some point because all the pictures i've seen are absolutely stunning oh yeah um i will say like the the little entrance is super tiny and it's called wind cave because it has a obviously it's a pressure equalization thing right and so if you stand in front of the little natural entrance i think I don't know how many natural entrances it has. I think it's only one or two. Um, It's super windy. You know, the barometric pressure is really different. And so, hence its name, Wind Cave. Um, Right. Teddy Roosevelt actually named this, you know, it's the eighth national park. Um, And there's a couple of caves in this area. And we chose Wind Cave to go to. And I'm glad we did because it's got this really weird um, calcite formation called Boxwork. And it actually has 95% of the box work in the world is found inside Wind Cave. 
So what is boxwork calcite formation? <laughs> so imagine a box and put it on the cave ceiling and act like it's made out of calcite, and that's what it is. Um, so it's this right. interaction. <laughs> yeah, it's it's these sort of linear um, sheets of calcite that interact to make this really intricate-looking um, rectangular pattern is all. Um, and so it's all over in there. And it doesn't... The tour that we did, granted, I had a three-year-old with me at the time. Um, <laughs> so the tour that I went on wasn't the big one. Um, but there weren't as big cathedrals. A lot of caves have cathedral rooms, so really big open rooms. So we didn't see a lot of that. It was a much more intimate kind of cave. Um, but it was still really, really neat. And it was cool to see those box works because they're really delicate looking. Some of them were. Um, so that was cool. And it's been... It was really explored by sort of the people that inhabited that area of South Dakota. And it was really scary to think of just crawling through this like one foot by one foot hole. And that's how this kid that originally mapped a bunch of it did it with a candle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that was not cool. (laughs) But um, Wind Cave also does, I thought this was really neat too. They do a lot of, you know, school outreach and stuff. And one of the things they do is talk about how you map caves. And so they have a lot of math problems and they'll have like trigonometry students come in and they'll do a lot of trigonometric functions to figure out like the size of these caves and stuff. And I thought that was really cool because when you take students out to the national park, you know, you do geology, you do ecology, you do biology. It's really neat to go to a cave and do math problems. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, cave mapping itself, it's a fascinating topic. And it's basically you measure, you make marks uh, with temporary markers, and you measure the bearing and inclination from one marker to the next. And you know where you started, and you basically just keep adding up how far you went and how far down or up you went to make the three-dimensional map of the cave and sketch cave cross cross sections at every marker. Uh, It's it's a time-consuming process, but yeah, it's all trig. Yeah, it's a, it was pretty it was pretty cool that that's actually a thing that they have in place. Um, and we've linked all these caves uh, websites on the show notes. But um, the next one, and this one mostly because it's the most recent cave I've been to, um, are the Lehman Caves. And that's in Great Basin National Park on the border of Nevada and Utah. So I've talked about it before because it left such an impression on me. It's such a cool place to go. One of the least visited national parks Um and this cave is amazing. <laughs> yeah, looking at the pictures, it's got some incredible, uh, like, parachute-looking formations and shields, just really dense networks of things hanging from the ceiling that are uh, yes. very fragile. <laughs> uh, yes, like, when you first, I was fortunate enough because my kid was old enough that we could actually take the long tour. So we took a really long tour with a geologist. Um through Lehman Cave, so that was really neat. But these parachute formations um, that they call, or shield formations, they thought for a long time that they were unique to Lehman Cave, which has since been found to not be true, but they do have some of the biggest ones. Um, And these things are really weird. So cave shields, and there's another link in here about cave shields, they're weird because of the way they look and also because of how they form. And so if you imagine a shield, like you would take into battle, a round shield, um, it's that shape that's hanging off of the wall and they hang off at a bunch of different angles. Like they could be almost horizontal. They could be almost vertical. Um, and they occur in highly fractured limestone caves. So Nevada, it's up in the mountains. It's right near Wheeler Peak, which is 13,000 foot. Um, it's the only, um, the only glacier in Nevada is right outside of there. So these shields happen there. And so they're these little plates and in between the plates is a crack and they think that they think I say that because they're not really exactly sure but capillary wick action so think of sucking water through a straw basically gets sucked up up not down up in between those plates and as it gets there it starts to precipitate calcite and then it'll run over the edges and you sort of get those strings on the which form the parachute um, off of some of these shields. It's hard to explain, but 
it's a really cool process actually and they're really unique looking formations i hadn't seen them anywhere before yeah once again i have not got to see them in real life just pictures uh, though they look spectacular oh it was amazing there's there's the famous picture which is we've linked in here of these parachutes um and it was an unbelievable unbelievable um cathedral room it was just huge and there was these shields everywhere and they have these huge pillar sets and a bunch of them are really big around like as big as your body followed by tiny ones that are like tens of feet tall and maybe only an inch around so layman caves definitely had the most spectacular um sort of formations that i've seen before yeah, well, and another one that I know we've both been to is Alabaster Caverns. <laughs> right. Um, so I put this in because it was the first cave that I went to. This is out in the Oklahoma panhandle, basically, the armpit of Oklahoma. Um, and we used to camp there when I was little all the time. And so I wanted to include it in here because it was my first experience with a cave. And then I, as I was looking it up, it's the largest natural gypsum cave in the world. Yeah, and there are some really odd varieties of gypsum uh, that are also found there and very few other places. Yeah, exactly. So um, alabaster is just gypsum, hence alabaster caverns. Um, And so you can find pink and white alabaster, but you can also find rare black alabaster there. And that's only found in two other places in the world, um, in addition to alabaster caverns. what I remember about Alabaster Caverns, when I was little, we went on a cave tour, right? And I was super excited. And I remember we were standing there. I mean, I couldn't have been six years old, probably. We're standing there, and the tour guide started to talk about this big pile of bat guano. And, like, bats, blah, blah, blah. And he kept saying this word guano. I didn't know what that was. So I touched it because it looked cool. (laughs) (laughs) And the whole tour started laughing and I was so embarrassed I hid behind my dad (laughs) and I I asked him why everybody was laughing and he said you just touched bat poop (laughs) yep and it was super traumatic (laughs) (laughs) but you Um, still remember it yeah oh yeah yeah because I was so traumatized (laughs) um but there are a lot of bats there it's actually really cool to camp there because at night you can go watch the bats come out of the cave and I remember we went there and we kept waiting for the bats and waiting for the bats and they didn't come. And um, so we went back and we were inside our tents. And then all of a sudden you could see like through the tent, all these little fuzzy flying bodies going over you. It was really neat. So it's a huge bat population and it's a really neat and accessible cave as well. And obviously it's the largest gypsum cave in the world. So that's pretty neat too. Yeah. And you know, the, bat exodus from some of these caves is so large that you see it on the national weather service radar (laughs) i love that i love looking at radar for weird things and yeah that is that is one of them yeah it's kind of like using using bat radar against themselves that's pretty funny (laughs) so i know there's a lot more we could talk about uh talk about cave mapping and all the interesting ways to do it but you know as, as usual, we're running long. <laughs> but there's so much to say about caves. <laughs> um, we can always tie this back into planetary science, too, um, because they're, you know, instrumentation looking for, like, caves on Mars and stuff like this. Um, and I think we'll have a lot to say about that in another show when we talk about these things that we use to map caves and how do you find caves and even 3D printed caves, which is super neat. Yeah, and I will say, if you are curious a little bit about some of the things that we could talk about, uh, look up Structure from Motion, which is basically where you take a lot of pictures, run it through an algorithm, and get a 3D reconstruction from your photos of what you went through or around. Uh, It's absolutely fascinating, and I think that combined with drones is probably going to be the future of cave mapping. Oh, that's really interesting. Much less exciting as exploring a cave on your own, but you know yeah though you can put a small drone through a very small hole and you might not get it back but you'll know what's on the other side (laughs) 
Um, it's pretty funny because you're going to have to be a really good drone pilot to be able to do this, right? Yes, and I'm not advising anybody to do this because I would say in most areas it's probably illegal. Yeah, that's true. But this could be the purview of, say, the National Park Service in the very right. near future. Oh, yes. Uh, and yeah. I know that we have a few shows on drones that we should probably do at some point in the future. <laughs> Those will be the ones where I just sit here and go, yep, I've seen one of those before. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now for something totally different, as they would say, (laughs) your weekly Fun Paper Friday. Yay! (laughs) So this has been a really hot topic uh, lately, and I'm guessing not a lot of people understand, myself included, probably why this is such a big deal. Well, and we're a little bit late to this, but, you know, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> our, our recording schedule gets a little bit staggered sometimes. Uh, so this is the paper by Abbott et al. And the et al. is a big et al. The author list yeah. is about three pages yeah. long. Uh, and it is called Observation of Gravitational Waves from a Binary Black Hole Merger. And it's in Physical Review Letters uh, the about February 12th this year is when it came out. Right, and so this is what everybody's been talking about is sort of the proof that gravitational waves exist because, I mean, the idea of gravitational waves goes way back, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. So in about 1916, after Einstein formulated uh, general relativity, he said there should be these gravitational waves. If you look at the the equations that are coming out of his analysis, they had wave-like solutions. And so he predicted them. And it it took us until now to actually confirm they do exist. (laughs) Right, exactly. Like a hundred years later. Yeah. And that's that's the power of following some form of the scientific method, which we've talked about, even if it's iterative. Uh, If you make a prediction Uh, (laughs) and then see what you predicted, you're you're probably on to something. Uh, right, exactly. Um, So it wasn't just a hundred years later, we found these things. There are a lot of equations to try to prove what was happening along the way right so first we had to understand that what black holes were and their gravitational properties as well and so there were these tiny little baby steps um and then how different quasi-normal modes of black holes which i'm just going to leave it at that (laughs) (laughs) and then we get into these super scary high order post-newtonian calculations (laughs) um And finally, using something that's near and dear to your heart, right? I know you love lasers and interferometry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, We figured out that these exist because we've seen them now. And the experimental setup of this is so cool. Oh, yeah. And this is one of those things where we really do live in the future because (laughs) the system was going through looking for gravitational waves in the data in real time. And it actually recognized this and sent a text message to those uh, intimately involved with the project. And I know one person said, I was about to go teach a class and I got an automated text message that said, gravitational wave candidate found. Yeah, how do you go teach a class after that? Uh, (laughs) You don't. That's the the answer. (laughs) Class dismissed. (laughs) Yeah. And the incredible thing is, pretty much right after they... So, well, let's take a step back. This was detected by LIGO, which is the Laser Interferometric Gravitational Observatory. There are two, are Laser Interferometer Gravitational Observatory. Uh, there are two of these, one in Washington State and one in Louisiana. So they're separated by a decent distance geographically. Mm-hmm. And the idea is if you see the same signal on both with the appropriate time delay, it's something real because the likelihood of something geological, meteorological, anything affecting both instruments the same way at the same time is very low. Right. Uh, The way these work is there are two four kilometer long tunnels and you take a laser and make a big Michelson interferometer. So the laser goes in, it gets split, it goes down each tunnel, hits a mirror at the end, comes back, and it gets recombined, and if the arms are the same length, then everything cancels out, and you get no light output from the interferometer. But if the length of one of the arms changes, then you get a different non-zero light output. 
So the question is, how do you change that four kilometer length, right? Yeah, I didn't even want to say warping of space time because it sounds like such a <laughs> such like a sci-fi thing to say, but that's what happens, right? Yeah, and so as the gravitational wave comes across, the relative lengths of these arms actually change as the wave passes over the Earth, and we detect that. Uh, so space is warping. Uh, it's <laughs> yeah. It's and but and, the, the catch is everything else changes the length of these arms <laughs> temperature any kind of noise any meteorological effects any tiny ground vibrations people exactly. in the area anything changes this <laughs> exactly that was uh what i was you know begging to ask is that how could you possibly like keep all of these essentially keep all of these other um factors equal you know, because they're so different. I mean, and this is the importance of having two stations relatively far apart. Yeah, and so the entire assembly, uh, the four-kilometer tubes are under a relatively high vacuum. Uh, the mirrors are suspended in these incredible anti-vibration mounts. And they use a bunch of optical tricks to keep the beam energy high and to try to reduce any kind of outside effects. Uh but this had been in operation for a while, mm -hmm. but it actually took it offline uh, sometime in the mid-2000s and upgraded it to now advanced LIGO, which actually had about an order of magnitude better sensitivity. And then, yeah, they turned it on, and sure enough, not long after they turned it on, in fact, days, uh, this <laughs> candidate was found. Which, I mean, you need that ultra-high sensitivity because we're the gravity perturbations we're talking about are tiny 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 like this isn't something you know you'd feel passing by no not at all and i mean in fact if you remember where you were at september or at about 950 utc on september 14th of last year <laughs> uh, that's when this happened but the strain in this remember we're talking something four kilometers long and the strain is about 10 to the minus 21 and so you could never, I mean, this is why you have to use a laser, because you couldn't measure those kinds of strain with a material, really. Uh, yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> and so I, <laughs> okay, yeah, I just did a calculation. That is four times 10 to the minus 17 meters <laughs> length change. I'm just going to laugh. I mean, what do you even, what do you even say? Um that's that. that's um <laughs> what 10 10 one ten billionth of a nanometer something like that and anyway it's a tiny fraction of a nanometer <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> you're below picometer you're down in zeta meter or something somewhere in there mm -hmm. yeah when it doesn't have a name that i can instantly know the exponent for yeah <laughs> too tiny to see <laughs> okay so i actually i actually just looked up a table of prefixes while we were talking and 10 to the minus 21 happens to be a zepto <laughs> and uh we're talking about something that's 10 to the minus 17 uh so that's about 10 atometers oh man why don't i know these that's or a hundredth of a femtometer yeah uh, <laughs> so no absolutely tiny amounts but if you look at the data in figure one of this paper the signal looks pretty much exactly like what we predicted and the signal from the two stations when corrected for the time shift between them is perfect yeah it's a match yeah that that's pretty cool actually the matchup is quite amazing uh, See, the model, interesting thing models work <laughs> models work and the interesting thing is the frequency over about a tenth of a second goes from something like 32 hertz up to over 200 hertz mm -hmm. uh, and basically what this is is these two large black holes are coming together merging revolving around each other and this is the frequency increases. They get closer and closer together and smash into each other, merge into one, and then that signal rings down. Uh, if you look at, yeah, so <laughs> the velocity so cool. of these black holes, the relative velocity uh, towards the end when the frequency is accelerated up to about 230 hertz is about 0.57 or so times the speed of light. Speed of light, yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, that that graph in figure two kind of blew me away. 
<laughs> um, yeah. Half the speed of light. It's massive. Um, the figure two is very informative as to what's happening um, as these guys merge. And then you get that signal ring down. It's kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, so this is something where I would have been tempted to start the paper with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's so true. You yeah. know, one of those follow-up papers is going to have that. Yeah, it has to. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. For those of you who don't want to read that paper or just need a little more help, we've also linked in um, the video from Jorge Cham at PhD Comics that actually explains gravitational waves quite well. Um also, it's, you know, an awesome comic as well. But um, it talks about, you know, these interactions and, you know, space being this rubber sheet and how these two bodies interact and how you would produce uh, gravitational waves. And then also, you know, how you would detect these tiny, tiny perturbations because it's saying that this detection that they saw is like looking at a stick that's one sextillion meters long changing by five millimeters wow (laughs) yeah (laughs) so yeah exactly (laughs) Uh uh-huh yeah yep (laughs) it's it just it pretty much it does render you speechless as i'm sure they were when they figured out what happened (laughs) yeah and i will say though the paper especially the second half of it gets pretty technical the first part especially the introduction and background is absolutely flawless uh it's oh, a really yeah. great read and it's really interesting it is and it's like you can actually glean quite a bit just from you know we always joke in academia we just read you know the introduction conclusion and figure captions but you can glean quite a lot from these figure captions because the figures are so well done and the whole thing is very well written yeah and i will link in you can get the analysis of this data as a jupiter notebook and do all your analysis with Python and make the exact same plots that are in the paper. It's a lot of fun. Uh, which is super awesome. Yay, open science. That's fantastic. Yes. If only I knew how to Python. <laughs> <laughs> well, Google Drive first, Python next. That's, that's right. I'm working on my hacker domination. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you have a fun paper that you think we should talk about or somebody that you'd like to hear us talk to or something that you'd like to hear us talk about, or maybe we talked about something incorrectly. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure. Yes, you should let us know. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, send us any of those audio or plain old written emails. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, we're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding.